The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information about Jason can be found at deroshi-meyer.org. Week after week you come, and it is such a gift to me. Um, I count it such a privilege to serve you in this way, and uh, I just want to say on behalf of Teresa and I how loved we feel and how grateful we are for you. Um, Some of you in this room, and I I know Teresa's going to do something more specific in the next week, but um, some of you in this room tangibly expressed your love to us by helping to get our car fixed. And uh, very unexpected, overwhelming grace. And I say thank you for those who may have participated in that behind-the-scenes gift of mercy. The story of God's people gets worse much before it gets better. Three-fourths of the Bible is the worst part. And, uh, <laughs> but how much mercy and hope we also see here. Today we move out of Leviticus into the book of Numbers. So I ask you to turn there. We'll begin in Numbers chapter 1. And I ask you to pray with me. Out of the depths we cry to you, O Yahweh. O Lord, hear our voice. Let your ear be attentive to the voice of our pleas for mercy. If you, O Yahweh, should mark iniquities, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. We wait for you, O Yahweh. Our soul waits, and in your word we hope. Our soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in Yahweh. For with Yahweh there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will forgive Israel all her sins. We pray this through Christ, only in his name. Amen. The book of Numbers is called that because there's a lot of them in the book. We have two census lists that frame, frame the book, and you get a glimpse of it in the outline I put on the page. There's movement in this book. Israel has been at Mount Sinai for over a year. So it's been a year and three or four months since the Exodus. And they move from Sinai through the wilderness 
to the plains of Moab. But they should have, at least on the surface, never arrived at Moab. Moab is on the east side of the Jordan River. Their first attempt to enter the land was from the south, and they met some big people. And they got a little close, and the shadow of the giant stood over them, the light fled, the darkness of the shadow was cast, and they forgot the Lord. And they trembled in the wake of kneecaps. So that's where we're headed today. We are going to move from Sinai through the wilderness. A wilderness that got stretched. Deuteronomy chapter 1 opens by saying it's an 11-day journey from Mount Sinai to Kadesh Barnea, which is where the spies were sent out. An 11-day journey that it got expanded into 40 years. So we begin with a census list. Next week we're going to unpack the significance of the census list when we get to the second one. And we compare the numbers of the first census list to the second census list. I'm driven by these kind of details. I scratch my head and say, why did you give us all this stuff? And I want to try to unpack that for us next week. But this week, I just want us to take a peek here at Numbers 1. It lays out for us um, that God began to count, God began to have the armies counted, and the numbers were great. So we begin down uh, in verse... In verse... 20. The people of Reuben, Israel's firstborn, their generations by their clans, by their fathers' houses, according to the number of names, head by head, every male from 20 years old and upward, all who were able to go to war. So that's all that we're counting. We're not counting those under 20. And that makes it challenging to have a clue how big Israel's population was. But we know this, that there were 46,500 Reubenite warriors. And then we go through all 12 tribes and the total figures are just over 600,000 men. So double the wives and then add the children. We're talking a million and a half people at least. And... um, If you've struggled with the numbers and numbers, like could they really be this big, I'd be happy to send you my own wrestlings with that, but we don't have time to wrestle with it. But it's it's a problem that some scholars have. I feel very comfortable with the numbers in numbers. I don't feel the need to to see them altered in any way. Um, It's a big group that God had redeemed in fulfillment of his promises, and that's That's the first point I want to make this morning. When we consider what's this census list all about, just the first sniff of it says, wow, they've got a lot of people. They went into the land with, into Egypt with 70 people. And out they come from Egypt with 603,000 warriors. And I read that, and the first thing that I think we're supposed to get is, oh my, the Lord has been faithful to his promises. 
He said, I will multiply your offspring like the sand of the seashore, and he's doing it. He said, Abraham, I will make you into a great nation. He's done it. And God is the one that we're supposed to read when we read the census list. All these numbers are supposed to, we're supposed to see the number and go, praise God. Because he's the one who has allowed this multiplication to happen. And then next week we're going to see how when we count the numbers in Numbers 26, the numbers have shrunk. And that too is going to tell us something. So the first step, the Lord's been faithful to his promise of multiplying Israel's offspring. And the implication of this, because when we think about Genesis, where we started this class last October, is that the offspring, multiplying the offspring, was always in Genesis. That promise was linked up with another promise. And I think that Israel, who's headed somewhere, and that, that promises the land, that in re- having the review of the census list, they're supposed to be building great confidence in a God who has been faithful and not all the promises are done yet. He will be faithful. That what he said he would accomplish, he will do, not only in making a nation, but in giving them the land. And that's where, what this book is about. It's about heading toward the land. So now we look at chapters 2 through 4. And again, I, I haven't read any commentaries that unpack it like this. I would bet they've, they've done stuff like this. This is just me saying, okay, what are they drawing for me? And they begin this way, the people of Israel shall camp each by his standard. I'm in chapter 2, verse 2. There's going to be banners lifted high of their father's houses. So think of a banner, like a flag, that says Judah on it, and Reuben, and Simeon, and Ephraim. So there's going to be these banners, and this is going to tell us how they're going to be camped. They're going to move, be moving through the wilderness, and right at the center of them is God's presence. The tabernacle will be set up, and they will move when God moves. And so then it goes into detail for us. It begins in verse 3, Those to camp on the east side of the tabernacle... Toward the sunrise, so we remember the tabernacle is eastward oriented. The door faces east, just like the Garden of Eden had. And on that east side, that's where Judah is supposed to camp. The standard of the camp of Judah by their companies, the chief of the people of Judah being Nashon the son of Amminadab, his company is listed at 74,600. Now those next to camp, those, sorry, those to camp next to him shall be the tribe of Issachar, his company 54,400, and then the tribe of Zebulun. Verse 9, all those listed of the camp of Judah by their companies were 1,806. Is that wrong? 100,000. Ah, 186,000. Sorry, let's go back to kindergarten. And uh, so 186,000. Now what this means is that um, 
There's 12 tribes, east, south, west, and north is how they're going to be laid out. Three tribes on each side. But of the three tribes, there's a main tribe. And that main tribe on the east side is Judah. The main tribe on the south is Reuben. The main tribe on the west is Ephraim. And the main tribe in the north is Dan. So they've got a bigger banner, and even so the circle is big, and even though Judah is on the top, on the east side, the entire circle represents Judah. It's he's like the, the main representative of these three tribes. And so I went through and I've laid out the pattern, and you see it right here, is how I see it described. In the middle, closest to the tabernacle, are the Levites, there's three families of Levites, Merari, Gershon, and Kohath, and each of them have different responsibilities when God, God's fire lifts up off the tabernacle. Each one has different responsibilities and what they get to carry and how they have to do it. But they're like guardians surrounding the tabernacle. And at the front of the tabernacle is where Aaron and all the high priests and Moses camp. And then outside of that, so the holiest is God, then the next level of holy is the priests and the Levites, and then the next level of holy is Israel. And they're going to be moving as a company with their lives centered on the Lord as they move toward the land, the fire of God at the middle. And what's a little bit interesting to me is that they don't lay them out according to birth order. If you go back to the census list in chapter 1, you'll see that Reuben is first, then Simeon. They skip over Levi because he's the priest and they're not going to fight. And he's not one of the 12 tribes. He's the extra. Then you've got Gad and then Judah. The birth order doesn't line up with the order that they're given to surround the tabernacle. So then I say, well, why would Judah have been given preeminence? Why would Judah have been placed as a representative guardian along with the high priests? Everyone who wants to enter into the tabernacle has to pass by Judah. Judah will be the first tribe that leaves. They lead all the company of Israel into the battle that will rage in front of them. So they are there to guard entrance into the house of God and they are there to lead Israel. So you see the numbers. Judah will go first, then Issachar, then Zebulun, then Merari and Gershon will actually take the Ark of the Covenant and they'll, they'll head off. That's four and five. And then you jump to Reuben, Simeon, Gad, and then Kohath at the back side will, he'll, he'll come after that group. So you'll, you kind of see the numbers and I'm sorry, I didn't realize till after I printed it off that um, some just can't read that. Um, but I hope you can get a sense for it up here. So Judah is on the right all the way to the top. And this is what came to my mind. Number two, I think, I think that this is what's the significance of this. 
at least beginning it, it's that God's purposes for Judah haven't stopped. Israel, don't forget the place that I have for Judah in my mind, and that takes us back to Genesis. Two things are to happen with Judah. Well, Judah is... So we've got the offspring of the woman who becomes the offspring of Abraham who becomes the king from Judah that is to reign and conquer all of God's enemies. Here's two texts that are significant. And your offspring, Abraham, shall possess the gate of his enemies. The ultimate offspring of Abraham. The anticipated, curse-overcoming, skull-crushing deliverer. Remember him from Genesis 3.15? He's going to crush your head, serpent. There's hope being built up in the book of Genesis for this coming one. Well, here we read about him. He's going to possess the gate of his enemies, singular. And it's through him. Up until this point, it's been understood just generally, Abraham, through you, the blessing of God's going to reach all these cursed people. It's going to happen through you that the reconciliation with God and man is going to come. But now it gets more specific in Genesis 22:18. It's specifically going to happen through this male offspring of Abraham, this male descendant in the line of the woman. He's the one who's going to overcome all the enemy gates and through whom the world will be blessed. And then when we get to Genesis 49, Jacob is blessing his sons. This is what he says. Judah, your brothers shall praise you Out of all the twelve tribes, you're going to be lifted up, Judah. Your brothers are going to praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Echo of chapter 22. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. The scepter, the royal scepter, shall not depart from Judah. Nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the people's. So I hear echo of that when I try to understand why did they give us the details of the camp arrangement. All all I did was, you could have done this, you could have read it and tried to draw it out as it's laid for us. What kind of pictures would have gone on in their mind? And when they pondered the significance, here at the front end of this book, heading toward the land, all building off of the substitutionary work that God established in the book of Leviticus, now we have not simply the picture of the substitute, but now the picture of the royal redeemer, the deliverer. And this is supposed to be in the mind of Israel as they head out from Mount Sinai going to the place that God had called them. They are not a people for themselves. They are a people on mission. And at the head is Judah and all the promises attached to him. Chapter 9. So they get the tabernacle ready. They celebrate the Passover. It's been a year since God redeemed them. They recall the blood that should have been theirs, the blood of the firstborn that was taken all throughout the land of Egypt, that God said, I'll take a substitute in your place. They remember this right in the context of getting ready to leave. 
house after house after house, remembering we were purchased with a price. We are not our own. We've been bought by God. No longer in slavery to the Egyptians. Now the Lord is our King. Passover celebrated, and then we read this. Chapter 9, verse 15. The repetition gets old. Here we go. On the day that the tabernacle was set up, the cloud covered the tabernacle, the tent of the testimony. And at evening, it was over the tabernacle like the appearance of fire. And it was that way all the way until morning. So it was always. The way this is worded, I don't think Moses wrote numbers when they initially made it to Kadesh Barnea on their first trip before the spies sent out. This has the flavor like it was always like this, meaning we got it a lot in 40 years. This is how it always happened. And we haven't heard that story about the 40 years yet, but it, but it has that sense like there was a lot of repetition here. It was always this way. Well, tell me about it. The cloud covered it by day and the appearance of fire by night. And wherever the cloud lifted, whenever the cloud lifted from over the tent, after that the people of Israel set out. And in that place where the cloud settled down, then the people of Israel camped. I would have thought that would be enough, but it wasn't. At the command of the Lord, the people of Israel set out, and at the command of Yahweh they camped. As long as the cloud rested over the tabernacle, they remained in camp. And when the cloud continued over the tabernacle many days, the people of Israel kept the charge of Yahweh and did not set out. Sometimes the cloud was just a few days over the tabernacle, and according to the command of Yahweh, they remained in camp. Then, according to the command of Yahweh, they would set out. Sometimes the cloud remained from evening until morning, and when the cloud lifted in the morning, they set out, or if it continued for a day and a night, when the cloud lifted, they set out. Whether it was two days or a month or even longer time that the cloud continued over the tabernacle, abiding there, the people of Israel remained in camp and did not set out. But when it lifted, they set out. At the command of Yahweh, they camped, and at the command of Yahweh, they set out. They kept the charge of Yahweh at the command of the Yahweh by Moses. How many have heard of the wilderness described as a place of wandering? Does this sound like wandering to you? What does it sound like? As long as the fire was over the tabernacle, what did Israel do? They stayed. What were they staying for? Or what were they waiting for? For the Lord to move. And then when the Lord moved, what did they do? They moved. Pardon? It wasn't just moving. They followed. Now hear that. In times of wilderness, and this is, I'm going to take this right out of the text. In times of wilderness, the call is not to wander. The call is to learn in the school of God what it means to wait and to follow. And why there's all that repetition right here in this text. It's as if future readers, do you get it? Do you know how long it took us 
to learn God's lesson. This was not about wandering through the wilderness. This was about waiting, waiting on God and then following God. It was his lead that made us move. When he said go left, we went left. When he said go right, we went right. When he said stop, when he said give, when he said step out in faith, that's what we had to do. Mm, That's so good. It's being near him. And for Israel, it was being near God in a season of wilderness. Deuteronomy is going to pick up on this theme and say you're moving out of the wilderness when you move into the promised land. And then as we're going to see by the end of the day, Lord willing, in the book of Hebrews, it says, Church, I'm going to talk to you as if you're on a journey just like Israel was on a journey. He's going to build an analogy And I want you to consider yourself heading toward the ultimate rest of promise. And your challenge is to wait on the Lord and to follow Him and know that He's with you. So that's the the beginning of the story. That's all from Sinai. And now we shift through the wilderness. I wish I didn't have to hop through this, but that's what I have to do. So I'm going to hop through it through pictures. It's kind of dark, sorry. In the second year, in the second month, in the twelfth day of the month, the people of Israel set out by stages from the wilderness of Sinai. That's the wilderness of Sinai. And what happens to Israel as they step out? They are not long before we read, and the people complained in the hearing of Yahweh about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of Yahweh burned among them and consumed some of the outlying parts of the camp. Now picture that. Where is God's fire? Look at your little diagram. It's in the center. And yet it says that God's fire raged and burned the outskirts of the camp. So what you have is a funnel effect. The glory of God shooting out and I mean, enveloping them and burning the outer skirts. The mercy of God that lifted over the sinful complainers and gave them a sign that watch yourself. But the complaining gave rise to, this is what we read in the next verses. After Moses had prayed and the fire died down, the rabble that was among them, verse 4, had a strong craving. And the people of Israel wept again and said, Oh, that we could eat meat. We remember the fish, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic. Israel had this kind of complaining before they got to Mount Sinai. You'll remember Exodus 15 through 18. And God's fires didn't rage this way. But now Israel has entered into covenant with God. They have made vows to Him. 
and they're turning on their vows. And they wanted meat. God would give them meat. More meat than they could handle. At the end of chapter 11, the wind from the Lord sprang up. He brought quail from the sea. He let it fall beside the camp. About a day's journey on this side and a day's journey on the other, all the way around the camp, there are birds 36 inches deep. That's, that's two cubits. That's a lot of bird. And the people rose all day and all the next day and they gathered the quail. They spread them out for themselves and while the meat was yet in their teeth, before it was consumed, the anger of the Lord burned against them and God struck the people with a great plague. That happened here in Hatzeroth. Now, along with this happening, so there are complainers, there are cravers, there's a plague, and then not only Israel, but Moses' own family begins to get irritated with him. And intriguingly, the irritation comes because he marries an Ethiopian girl. That's what it says in chapter 12, verse 1. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married. So she's black and Moses is not. He would have a a fairer complexion as a Hebrew. And it appears there's some kind of prejudice also going on here. And God has no problem with interracial marriage. In fact, in this text, it's one of the strongest texts in the Bible that bless interracial marriage. Praise God. He has a problem with interfaith marriage. Always. But this is what he does to Miriam. He says, you like white? I'll make you white. And he makes her leprous. In seven days she was sent out of the camp. Moses prayed, God healed her. But they stayed there for seven days. Israel's story here is not good. The complaining, the grumbling, the craving. They're looking backwards instead of looking forwards. And it's setting a tone for a deep mire. What we're told is that Israel tests God ten times and it's the tenth time that God finally says enough. So their complaining and craving and prejudice gives rise to God's wrath. And here's what we read. I'm now, I'm going to jump over the story and just read a statement in Numbers 14. Truly as I live, all the earth will be filled with the glory of Yahweh. None of the men who've seen my glory and my signs that, they did, that I did in the land of Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these ten times. I want us to consider what does it mean that Israel tested God? What did it look like? 
because it's not good to test him. In this way, anyway. Do we see any of it in our own souls? Any tendencies? When Israel expressed fear at the sea, before God showed up and parted the waters, the enemy was coming. And the fear was a first test. Three days into the wilderness is at Marah, when Israel complained that the spring was bitter and they were thirsty. God, what you're giving me is not what I want and I don't like it. Test. Two and a half months after the exodus in the wilderness of sin, when Israel complained that they were hungry. Israel's failure to eat all the daily manna. He gives them instructions and they don't abide by the instructions. Then, same instance, Israel's failure to gather enough manna. Another instruction. Get enough on Friday so that you'll have enough on Saturday. And people failed to do that and they went out on Saturday. Fifth test. At Rephidim, when the people were thirsty and quarreled with Moses... And it says, they tested God. Is God really among us or not? As the glory presence stood in their midst, they were just so angry because they were expecting more from God. And they didn't get it. At least God wasn't acting in their timing. At Sinai, when Israel worshipped the golden calf. At Taborah, that we just read when Israel complained about the misfortunes and God's fire consumed some of the camp. At Tabra, when some complained that they were sick of manna and hungry, we skipped over that part, and they wanted other food other than the manna, and then at Kadesh, when the ten spies expressed lack of faith in God, and that's where we go now. That's number ten. So you know the story. Get one representative from each tribe. Caleb is from the tribe of what? Exactly, Judah. Joshua was from the tribe of, good, Ephraim. And then there's ten other guys, and they all go in. Do they find good things in the land? They do. But somehow... The good they found was not enough because they found something else. What was that? They found the giants. And they got scared. So we want to pick up there with their fear. All the congregation raised a loud cry. Chapter 14, verse 1. They grumbled. Why is the Yahweh bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become prey. Let's choose a new leader. Who's for a new leader? Crucify Moses. Let's get a new guy. Verse 6. And Joshua and Caleb, who were among those who had spied out the land, they tore their clothes They went before the congregation. They said, The land which we passed through to spy out is exceedingly good. And now I want to make, just walk through some observations 
regarding the significance of this event. And I want to put it into a framework because this isn't just about the past. As we're going to see, the New Testament authors call the church to read this as our story. And the giant's experience, the wilderness experience is, is picked up as an analogy for the challenges that we face. The persecutions that arise. The physical ailments that come. The relational tensions that we experience. And the question is, will we persevere? Will God be enough? Will we believe that He's worthy of our persistent trust or not? So, pick your giant and listen to how, listen to the framework that the Old Testament believers, Joshua, Caleb, Moses, the framework they put this trial into, and then we're going to jump to the book of Hebrews and see how he frames it for us as a church. First off, when God's people face giants, they need to do it with confidence that God is with us and that He is for us. Look at verse 9, verses 8 and 9. If the Lord delights in us, don't you understand it? If the Lord delights in us, we don't need to fear He'll bring us into the land. He'll give it to us. A land that flows with milk and honey. We've seen it. And only don't rebel against Him. Don't fear the people of the land. They're bread for us. Think back about the census. God has been faithful. He'll be faithful again. Their protection is removed from them. The Lord is with us. Don't fear. That's... Not focused on past grace, that's focused on what? Future grace. In light of who we are, His own, redeemed, He is with us, He is for us. We don't need to fear. They're like bread. Verse 10, then all the congregation said, stone them with stones, but the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting. Verse 11, key key verse. The Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me in spite of the signs that I've done among them? Paul says the law was not of faith. Galatians 3.12 He says that not because God didn't call for faith. Read it again. How long will they not believe in me? Put it into the positive. Israel, believe in me. But they did not believe. When Paul says the law was not of faith, what he means is that, sure, God called for faith. He called for love. Love me with all of your heart. These words that I command you today, get them on your heart. But Israel wouldn't listen. At least most of them. Most of Israel would not believe. How long will you not believe? And then notice what he says. How long will you not believe in spite of past grace? 
in spite of God's past power, his past mercy, all that he had done, think about how Philippians 4 sets it up. Don't be anxious, but in everything pray with thanksgiving. Bury yourself in past grace to give you confidence that your tomorrow, your this afternoon is going to be okay. Israel failed to remember how big God had been in their past. And it allowed the giants to look a lot bigger than they really were. Don't let the giants look big. God is for you. So the two ways that Israel faces the giants, they face them with confidence in God's presence and favor. They face them with faith that's been birthed out of past grace. This is a significant lesson. Verse 12, Because they failed to believe in me, I will strike them with pestilence and disinherit them, and I will make of you, Moses, a nation greater and mightier than they. Do we realize the significance of lack of faith? It could cost you heaven. Pastor John's little book, Battling Unbelief, he, he, he just clarifies how every sin that we can ponder is ultimately a lack of faith sin. We get pulled into lust we're failing to trust that God is enough to satisfy, and so we're giving ourselves over to something else. We get pulled into bitterness, prejudice, because we fail to believe that God is over all things, truly just, and will vindicate us. That, that He is going to be a good enough judge. Do we believe that He will or will we take it into our own hands and deal with it ourselves? To believe that He can meet our need and instead we allow anxiety to fill us over the phone call we have to make or the, the fear of loss of job or the fear that it's not going to come when you really need it. Faith problems. And faith Faith is an eternal destiny issue, according to Numbers. Lack of faith is a sin that deserves death. Here's an amazing truth. Get out of my way, Moses. And Moses, like he did with the golden calf, he refuses to get out of God's way. God, if you destroy all of Israel and just leave me, your reputation is going to get tainted. Hear how he prays with a passion for the glory of God. That's what drives his prayer. The Egyptians will hear of it, for you brought up this people in your might from among them, and they will tell, of the, tell the inhabitants of the land, they've heard that you, O Yahweh, are in the midst of the people, for you, O Yahweh, are seen face to face. Now if you kill this people as one man, these nations who have heard of your fame will say, oh, it's because God was not able. God, do you want people to talk about you that way? Now please, by the power of the Lord, be great as you have promised, for the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. 
He is praying Scripture. Do you hear it? He's motivating God by reminding Him who He is. Let's do that. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, God. That's who you are. Remember, you're the one who forgives iniquity and transgression. But you will by no means clear the guilty. You visit the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and the fourth. Please, God, pardon the iniquity of this people. Do so according to the greatness of your steadfast love. Just as you've forgiven this people from all the times since they left Egypt until now. Yeah, it's been ten times. But God, give us eleven. Pardon us one more time. Don't wipe us out. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word. God responds to the prayers of the righteous. That's what James says. And here it defines who the righteous are. It's someone who is in right order as God defines the order of the universe. That is, someone who is praying for the sake of God's name. That's what I want to see happen here, Lord. You to be exalted over all. He's in the right order. He's got the hierarchy correct. We are low, you are high. Work for the sake of your name. And God responds. Verse 21. Why does God do what He does? Why will God, though He will judge Israel, He will not put an end to them? It's because way, way back in Genesis, He created a people in His image and called them to fill the earth, multiply and subdue it. To take His image to the ends of the earth, to show the world that He was worth living for and that He was truly sovereign. Fill the earth! As imagers of me, make much of me, and do so in the context of blessing, fully dependent on me. And though the fall happened, and though Israel has sinned, God's passion to preserve and display His glory will not be put to an end. He preserves a remnant. Here's what it says. All the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. It's going to happen. None of the men who've seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, yet have put me to test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice, none of them shall see the land that I swore the fathers. But there's Caleb. Because he has a different spirit, may you have a different spirit. May your co-workers see a different spirit. Not identified with the rebel of Israel, but identified with the remnant of Israel. May you be united in faith to Caleb. Because of his different spirit, he's followed me fully. Because of that, I'll bring him into the land. And then we jump down to verse 29. Your dead bodies will fall in the wilderness. And of all your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward who grumbled against me, not one shall come up into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell except Caleb and except Joshua. Then they despised the pleasant land, having no faith in his promise. This is the psalmist meditating on our text. They murmured in their tents. They, they didn't obey God's voice. Therefore, 
He raised his hand and swore to them that he would make them fall in the wilderness and would make their offspring fall among the nations, scattering them among the lands. Jude 5, I want to remind you, although you once were fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterward, destroyed those who did not believe. That's an interesting text. Because it identifies Jesus with this God of judgment. He was there. He was there. And he ultimately destroyed them. And why? Because they didn't have persevering faith. Now turn in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews as we close. We have five minutes. The book of Hebrews, chapter 4, or the end of chapter 3 is where we will begin. Chapter 3, verse 16 is where we'll start. Who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was God provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did God swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. That's, that's our passage. How long will you not believe? That's what kept that generation from entering God's rest. Verse four, chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Notice what he does. He, he says... Verse 8, if Joshua, who comes after Moses and actually takes Israel into the promised land, if Joshua had given them rest, then God would not have spoken of another day. The ultimate rest is eternal, and that's where we're headed. Let me make some observations on this text. Verse 2, good news came to us just as to them. Do you hear that? That's the word gospel. Israel got good news. It's not just a New Testament reality. Israel got good news. Just as we got it, they got it. But the message they heard didn't benefit them. Why didn't it benefit them? Because they had no faith that would have linked them to Joshua and Caleb. They were not united by faith with those who actually listened. Church, don't be like that. Israel's a picture of us, but where they failed, may we not fail. Israel heard good news, but only some listened. Look at chapter 3, 12 through 14. Here's how it begins. Take care that you're not like Israel. Take care lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. So they're in a race from redemption to rest. And in the middle of that race, the most important muscle is the heart. 
Take care lest there be in any of you an evil unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it's called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Why is it so important to guard your heart and to surround yourself with people who can help you guard your heart? To keep you believing and not doubting. Why is it so important? Verse 14. For we have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly to the end the confidence we had at the beginning. And then that opens the door for him to talk about how Israel, who never ultimately shared in God because they didn't hold firmly to the end the confidence they had at the beginning. Persevering faith alone ensures rest. Chapter 4, verse 1, While the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear God, lest any one of you should not make it. So the call is to persevere here. But notice the gift of God. The persevering faith is not something that he's left us alone on. Verse 2, for the good news came to us just as it did to them, but the message they heard didn't benefit them because they weren't united by faith with those who listened. That's what God wanted. He's wanting to have ourselves surrounded by people that we can link arms with. Chapter 12 begins with the great cloud of witnesses right after the big faith chapter. Get linked up with them. And not only that, not only linking arms with people of the past who've persevered, But verse 13 of chapter 3 says, Exhort one another as long as it's called today so that, so that you won't give in to sin's deceitfulness. Persevering faith unites us with other believers and it's fueled by the encouragement of others. And finally, the church must not be like Israel but must work together to live by faith, striving to enter rest. Let us therefore, verse 11 of chapter 4, strive to enter the rest that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. How do we do it? We go to the text that we had at the very end of our sermon today. Verse 14 of chapter 4. How do we strive? We strive knowing that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession in light of all that past grace and all the future grace that's been secured. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. He understands the wilderness. He was tempted in every way there, 40 days rather than 40 years, and he overcome, and he is for us. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to a throne of grace that we as sinners broken though we may be, stumbling in our quest of God might receive mercy and to find grace, timely grace, to help us right when we need it. Israel as a whole failed, but because of Christ, we don't have to. So be grounded in past grace. Put your hope in future grace. 
What you hope for tomorrow can change who you are today. Don't doubt the promises. The giants will fall by the grace of God. Let me pray. Lord, I thank you that you are faithful. So faithful. All your promises are yes in Christ, but all your promises are not yet fulfilled. It does not look like everything is subjected under your feet, but our hope is in you, the pioneer, the perfecter, the creator, our hero. Keep us hoping in you, trusting in you, persevering in our faith in the one who is fighting for us, who has fought for us, the one in whom every enemy power, every fear, every doubt, every sin has been overcome. You've been resurrected from the dead and you are with us even to the end of the age. Encourage hearts today, Lord, where there are those who are struggling to persevere in trust. Keep them going. Surround them with tangible help. In Christ I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at bcsmn.org. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at deroshi-meyer.org. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who rules, saves, and satisfies through covenant for His glory in Christ.